cost analysis is the process of analyzing the cost and output relationship of a product, a service, or a project. I called Gail this week because I had this next example in mind, but I needed to pass it by her first to make sure it wasn't too touchy. She laughed at it, so she said, it's okay, John. So as my representation of cost analysis, an insurance man went to a woman's house who had recently lost her husband to give her a check uh, as part of the life insurance, and it was for $50,000. And She said with a cracked voice, I loved him so much. I'd even give $25,000 back just to have him back with me. The lesson is called cost analysis, and the first point is value. Defining value was something I asked the kids uh, Friday evening at the little game night we had in Lyman. It's something John Michael brought up last night, and it's something Justin brought up in his class briefly this morning. The word value. So I said to the group, define value for me. And one of the girls there was a visitor uh, with one of the, uh, with the Lyman congregation. And she said, if it has value, it is something you don't want to give up. So I quickly went off my business mindset of purchases and exchanges, and I said, what do you mean? She said, I got a gift from my grandmother as she passed away. It's not something that is worth a lot of money, but to me, it has so much value, I would not want to get rid of it. So I worked with that thought, which was a profound thought all by itself. And I brought up the parable of the pearl of great value at, at uh, Matthew chapter 14, chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Jesus said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So I said this pearl of great value is similar to this memento you got from your grandmother in that it has so much value you don't want to get rid of it. But the pearl of great value that Jesus is talking about is something that's so worth it that we should be willing to give up everything of a worldly value just to get it. But I said there's something unique about this pearl of great price that is different than anything else we can value. We can also share it. And what we have does not diminish. But it will help somebody else along the way. I keep it, and I can share it. And what is the kingdom of heaven? 
Well, we can use things like salvation, forgiveness, Christ's blood, and so many other things that we value so highly. But just because we share it does not take away its worth for us. So all the costs that we give up does not outweigh the benefit that is God's everything, His grace for us. What we give up doesn't even compare, does it? And that's our good God. So when we think of things that are valuable or have value, run that cost analysis by and try to figure out the cost and output relationship that God offers through Jesus Christ. The second point, and a much longer point of the three, is decisions. I like chess, but as uh, people like Cooper and John Michael keep finding out, even though I like it a lot, it doesn't mean I can't get beaten. You no comment there, Cooper. But chess and strategic games like that, they have a lot of teaching that goes along with them, whether somebody realizes or not. Decision making, which includes cost analysis. What's the value of that piece compared to the bat piece? If I lose this piece, do I gain something here? What is the purpose? What is the value? What is the purpose of playing the game? And if you ask that question to anybody, it's not to see how many pieces you have left. It's not to see if you can hold on to all the knights. The purpose of it is to win. Is to win. The kings of Judah that you find, the three that I'm pointing out in 2 Chronicles chapter 14 through 21, Obviously, we're not going through all that in detail, okay? But in real life, they played chess, you might say. I don't know if the game was invented, but how they ruled their kingdom, how they dealt with other kingdoms, how they moved their pieces into play to win was something that they were heavily involved in. They were involved in decisions. There is one king, his name is Asa, or Azza. He was mostly good. That means he made a few errors in life, uh, some judgment calls, and he was called on the carpet for it. But mostly, he was a good king. There was an army coming against his people of Judah. And the text says it was a million-man army. But as you read, you realize that his army was roughly around 300,000 people. He was scared. He was scared. Now, if you were one of those kings in one of those kingdoms or queens, what might you do? You might call your alliances. You might make an alliance. You might 
hang up the surrender flag. But what he did was something that most of us did not do, did not do or do not do, I should say. He sought God. He sought God. Wouldn't you like a nation to, that we lived in that sought God right now? In all the different facets that we have amongst us. What does God want? What direction does God want for us to go? He had this mindset. And lo and behold, guess what happened? 300,000 against a million. Who won? God did. And they created such bounty from everything that was left behind that they gathered all this booty and they brought it to their land. He didn't stop there. In fact, he got rid of all the idols and all the worship, false worship in his land. Evidently, even though you're the king of the land, that doesn't mean the people don't think for themselves. So he did his best to get rid of some of this influence. 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. The Spirit of, the God, of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Azza and said to him, Hear me, Azza, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So Azza did a lot of religious reforms and wonderful things. Though at the end of his life, why does that always seem to happen to some of these characters in the Bible? Always really good, but at the end of their life, boy, they got a, a big doozy. He had a big doozy. But he didn't see it that way at first. He was thinking, I'm king, and I need to move my chess pieces around. Maybe he was thinking, this is a small matter. It's not like a million against 300,000. Uh, I can deal with this one, and God might be proud of me for thinking on my feet. So he gets an idea in his mind, and he calls upon an alliance with Syria. You see Israel, the northern Israel, was building this great structure so that the people of Israel could not go into Judah, maybe for worship in Jerusalem or because they were escaping all the evil that was going on with the, with the kings at that time. I think Ahab was right in that era. And we know about Ahab, nasty fellow. Well, Asa did not like this rampart or whatever was being built. So he made a, he got some gold and some silver together and he bought out the allegiance of Syria and says, you tack Israel for me, I appreciate it. And they did, Syria attacked. They took over a few cities of northern Israel. And while they were doing that, the armies and the people left this area that Asa did not want Israel to be around. And they, they knocked down all the timbers. He took all the rocks away, got rid of the structure. And I can see him sitting back going, boy, I did a good job. And I didn't even have to lift, lift a finger other than to 
pay off the Syrians to do it for me. But a prophet was sent to him. Did you not think that I would take care of you? Why did you make an alliance with Syria when all you had to do was ask me? For help. So, he made a decision. His son Jehoshaphat became king of Judah after him. He was mostly good as well. Like his father, and I can't say if Asa, because of that blunder, did not learn his lesson. But Jehoshaphat, like his father, ran a good course too. And it even says of Jehoshaphat in particular, even more so than Asa, is that he walked in the ways of David. Second Chronicles chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. That means he's a man of decision, isn't it? He decided that God is who he's going to follow. He grew his army, believe it or not, to well over a million people on his own and very prosperous. Yet in this game of chess, he made a stupid move. And it comes out of 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 1. Now, I don't know why he didn't think this was a stupid move. The text really doesn't say. It was a stupid move. And this is it. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. Who? Ahab. You know, Ahab and Jezebel, the Baals, and everything they did. So Ahab's now in power in northern Israel. I guess Jehoshaphat, as with all kings, they're making these alliances. Why? And they make marriage alliances. Why? Well, to secure their peace, to secure their relationship. Did he seek God's counsel in that? Maybe he didn't think he needed to. I'm king. I've made some good moves. I walk with David. God loves me. I'm prosperous. But then he made this marriage alliance. Well, we don't really understand the full ramifications of this till later. Later, though, a great army, three nations or armies within three nations came to attack Jehoshaphat and Judah. It doesn't say that Judah went up to Israel and says, I need your help. So I'm confused a little bit about this marriage alliance. I would think that would just garner Ahab's support, but Ahab doesn't seem to be involved, which may be one indication that he had some bad decision thinking by joining with Ahab's crew. But he sought God, and he won. What, what happened is two of the three nations coming against Judah attacked that third nation, so there were two against Judah, and then these two attacked each other, and God wiped them all out, and, and Judah got all this plunder. God can take care of it. Well, maybe he knew his lesson that he learned from his dad. Don't call on anybody else but God. He walked in the ways of God, though there were problems in the land. And he was so generous to his sons. 
When he died, guess what he did? He gave gold and silver to all his sons. They're listed in the text. And he made his oldest son the king. Why? Because tradition states that the oldest must be king. I wonder what tradition he was being influenced by. Hmm. His name was Jehoram. He was most wicked. Most wicked. He was more like Ahab than he was like Azza. You see, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel was his wife. Second Chronicles chapter 21, verse 6. You know what he did to all his siblings? He killed them all. He killed every single one of them. Where is he getting his decision-making concepts from? Well, the story goes and goes where eventually Jehoram is killed and his wife takes over. Remember who she is? She actually became the queen of Judah for a while. She killed all her relatives except one son who got away. Who was giving the advice to Jehoram all this time? Well, 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 3 brings up a particular character. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, and Omri being the father of Ahab. She was the decision maker. She was the influencer. She was the one to whom people were going to get their decision making done. If you look at these three kings, any difference that you see showed what they valued or who they valued. What does that say when it comes to our decision making? The last point in cost analysis is cost. It's safe to say that God values people. Isn't that kind of the first uh, of that sentence that we made in Justin's class? God, I think it loves man. That's the first sentence. God values people. But only God's blood can redeem us. Gen uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a substitution by His blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When did God plan this purchase price? When did God develop this cost analysis to save man? Is man worth saving? How can he be saved? Well, they figured out the only way man can be saved is if God intervenes, and he intervenes by his blood. They developed the cost analysis. Is there a reward from this cost analysis? And they said, yes. It's the salvation of mankind. The salvation of mankind. They figured this out before the world was even created. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, we have a promised redemption. And it comes all the way to Genesis Chapter 3, verse 15, right after Satan did what he did to us and we accepted it, what is said there? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your, his heel. God had a plan to bring about redemption. He developed the cost analysis. He thought about the value. He made decisions. And he said, the cost of my son is worth the price. If it's worth the price to save us, should it not be worth our price to give up everything that could come between us and God? Amen. We got away the cost analysis. We got to think about what is most important in this life. When we make a decision, we're kind of like the king or queen in our own family. Will it benefit us in the long run? Or are we short-sighted? Does God have to get our attention and ask for repentance and so we can move on? Or are we going to walk in the ways of David, having God always before us, needing His counsel and guidance is it safe to say a good cost analysis on anything is seeking god's direction first proverbs chapter 7 verses 22 through 24 this is part of the passage that bill read this morning it's talking about wisdom and folly which one are you going to choose? Wisdom from God or folly from the world? Proverbs 7, 22 through 24. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Following folly, that is. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pieces its, pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into his snare, he does not know that it is, will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me. Listen to the wisdom, not the folly. And be attempted, attentive to the words of my mouth. Isn't that what God asks us to do? Be attentive and listen to the words of his mouth.
If there's anybody here today that has